So church, we're in the book of Colossians. We're going through this book that is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church he had not met. He'd only heard about from a loyal pastor named Epaphras who was visiting Paul in Roman prison. And so the Apostle Paul uh, is talking about the section we're dealing with now is how to deal with the issue of, of sin. And he's, he's, talking about, he's talking to them about, about a, a teaching that has come into the church that says basically it's, it's fine to believe in Christ. It's, it's fine to affirm him. But if you really, really want to be made right with God, if you really want to have his power in your life, then you have to become a super spiritualist, an uber spiritualist, and go through several regimens. And, 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 and you've got to, you've got to he, he elicits them in, in Colossians chapter 2. He says that, he says, don't, don't let anybody disqualify you, verse 16, which means to steal your joy by, by, by insisting on, and he mentions three things, and that's the, the harsh treatment of the body. They said, really, if you're going to be made right with God, you've got to really treat your body harshly. Secondly, you've got to have angel mediators. You've got to have angels that will usher you into the presence of the undefinable God who is a God of purity. And so you have to have these angel mediators. And we believe in other literature, you, you should know them by name. And the Apostle Paul would thunder forth, no, there's, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus. He died on the cross for your sin. He is the eternal priest. He is forever God. So you don't need any mediator. You don't need saints to pray for you or anything else like that. And the third thing they said is, is you've got to be somebody who has these, these visions, these visions that only you could interpret. And as you have these visions, they'll make you really, really, really spiritual. And the apostles, Paul says, no, no, we, our ultimate reality is Christ. And so you may draw on the apostolic teaching and not personal visions that only you can interpret, but, but things that are central to the scripture. And, and the reality is, Paul says, if you fall prey to this teaching of the uber-spiritualist, he says, the, 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 the problem is you will lose connection with the head. He said, if you do this, you will lose connection with the head, verse 19, from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments and grows with a growth that is from God. You'll lose connection with Christ. So this is an, an, a great, an incredibly important issue. He said, you know, you've you got to understand this, that Christ is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end of what you need. Everything you need is found in Christ. And then he goes on and says that, that, that the problem with these people, they have an appearance of, of, of spirituality. You know, you meet people that discipline themselves and beat their body and go on long pilgrimages and they're doing that to earn the favor of God. You say, wow, they must be a spiritual person. No, they've missed the boat. You go to India today, there are many men who will renounce worldly possessions. In the last few years of their life, they'll go around begging to earn favor with God. And you say, he's a spiritual man. No, he's missed the boat. Or you meet people who say, you know, I'm, I'm all into angel worship and angel guides. And these angels are an intermediary between me and God. And these, these intermediaries bring me into his presence and say, wow, they're a spirit. No, they've missed the boat. Or people that go into great detail about a vision they may have had that only they can interpret and only they can give credence to, which is divorced from Scripture. You say, wow, they, they've got to be spiritual. No, they've missed the boat. And furthermore, Paul says, he says, verse 23 of chapter 2, these, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism or their rough treatment of the body and severity to the body, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They don't, they don't put to death the sins of the flesh. And so the apostle Paul now is going into this 
teaching on how do you break the stranglehold of sin? How do you put sin to death? And so chapter 3 says this. If you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life has been risen with Christ in God. Verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. And what's interesting here is, is, is you look at this and there, there are two main arguments Paul uses before he launches into verse 5, put to death therefore these things. The two arguments are understand who you are in Christ. Understand your union with Christ. That's the word we use. Understand your union with Christ, who you are in Christ. He's been dealing with that throughout the passage, throughout the book. He says in chapter 2, verse 11, he says, you know, you have been circumcised. He's talking about people that said you've got to be circumcised to be right with God. He says, but you have been circumcised in a circumcision that was made without hands. You've been circumcised internally by the Holy Spirit. He says, you've been baptized into Christ's death and his resurrection. He, he says, verse 13, when you were dead, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us our trespasses. He, he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands, nailing it to the cross. You've triumphed over them in Christ. So our, our union with Christ, so, so, so the first statement is, who you are in Christ. And then we, we talk about that frequently. That you're declared righteous in God's sight by faith alone, through the work of Christ alone. That you are adopted into the family of God. Not only are you forgiven, but you are clothed in his righteousness and adopted. That you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You receive the Holy Spirit if you're a believer. That heaven is your home. And, and, and all of these incredible blessings that flow from our union with Christ. And yet, the other stream that the Apostle Paul brings to this argument is found in verses 1 and 4. But verse 4 says this, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. And so as I looked at this passage, I thought, you know, the other argument that the Apostle Paul uses is this, behold the glory and the magnificence and the wonder of heaven. And, and so as I've looked at my life, I said, you know, do I think frequently about the glory and the grandeur of heaven? And yet that is one of the key themes of how to stay strong in the faith. I'll give you an example. This is one of my four favorite systematic theologies. It's by a guy named Louis Burkhoff. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful systematic theology. I've used it time after time after time for 40 years. And I... I if you're going to read one book next year, this would be a good book to read. It's, it's 800 pages, so it's, not a, it's small print and 800 pages, so it's, it's, it's just not an easy read. As glorious as this is, there are three pages in here on heaven. Three. And, and so I, I look at that compared to the apostolic teaching on heaven, and I'm thinking, I'm much more like Louis Burkhoff in, in the way I live and think than, than like the New Testament. I'm not in any way criticizing this man. This man is light years ahead of me. But what I'm saying is, does the hope of heaven motivate 
and compel us. Example, our women on Tuesdays and Thursdays are studying the book of, of 1 Peter. I've taught through 1 Peter. I've read through 1 Peter a bunch of times. If someone were to say to me, what is the theme of 1 Peter? i say, well, the theme of 1 Peter is the Christian in suffering. And, and ancillary themes would be the Christian and relationships, the Christian and his relationship in marriage. First, First Peter 3 is all about marriage, or, or the Christian and his relationship with the governing authorities, First Peter chapter 2, or the Christian and his relationship in the church with elders and leaders, First Peter chapter 5, or the Christian and his relationship before the watching world, First Peter chapter 2. But then in, in thinking through this, I, I just read through 1 Peter a few times, and, and let, let me just read some verses. I think one of the key themes of 1 Peter is the hope of heaven. And I say that as a criticism of me, because I'm not sure I would have said that until recently. But let me just read some verses, and you ask yourself, how did you miss that? Well, I missed it. So 1 Peter, just a few verses. Chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So that's heaven. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ out of the dead to obtain an inheritance, heaven, that is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. It's pretty clear. Or chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The hope of heaven. Chapter 1, verse 17. If you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Exile. Exile means this is not our real home, that our real home awaits. The theme of exile is spoken of once again in chapter 2, verse 11. I, I beseech you as aliens and exiles. That's it, exiles. That's your real home. To abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. The hope of heaven. Chapter 4, verse 7. It says this. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The end of all things. The reality of Christ. Chapter 4, verse 13. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The hope of heaven. Chapter 5, verse 1, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Heaven. Verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Chapter 5, verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, and establish you. And so, so my, my, my issue is the hope of heaven was central in 1 Peter and the rest of the Bible. And, and, and I am negligent in that area. I read this, I'm going, the two streams of who I am in Christ and the hope of heaven. This week, uh, last Sunday, I was uh, in Washington State with my son and his wife and our two grandchildren and we went to church and came home, and I flipped open my iPad, and I saw where there had been this horrendous shooting in Texas at a small church. And the more I read, the more incredibly discouraged I was, and how horrendous, and 
um, really, sometimes you get to the point of saying, um, I can no longer say I am shocked. I I found myself saying I am shocked. It was horrible. So uh, I'm sure you were, like me, you were absolutely unhinged. And then a few days ago, someone sent me a quote quote from an article in the Washington Post by an 86-year-old man who's lost, I think, eight family members in the shooting. This is in the Washington Post. It was was wonderful. This is what he says. And really, if we could read this and say, amen, because this is what I want to say. He said, it's of course going to be difficult. But we are Christians. We have read the book, we know the ending, and it is good. They are in heaven, and they're a lot better off than we are. You go, the hope of heaven. And I think about, I think about us, and if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, and some of you had a rough day yesterday in football, I know that, so this is not a great morning for you. But if you're, if you're a believer, in one way or another, this is as bad as it gets. Now, again, there are ups and downs in this life. If you have never trusted in Christ and you face an eternity without him, this is as good as it gets. Yeah. He says, you know, they're, they're in heaven. They're in heaven. They're better off than we are. And that, that's, that, that's what I'm trying to say. So it's our union with Christ and the hope of heaven. So let me mention two issues about heaven and then some other issues as I frame this argument for the next couple of weeks as we think about the, the hope of heaven. The, the problem number one is uh, when you just try to describe heaven, it's like it's 1830 and you're living in the flatlands and you're trying to describe an ocean or, example, uh, Carl Schooling, who's been on our staff for over 20 years, is a wonderful man, a, a great brother in the Lord. And um, Carl grew up on the flat plains of Missouri as a dairy farmer next to Kansas in a very nondescript, flat place. Um, he went to Central Missouri State University, whose mascot is the, the Fighting Mules. How's that for a great mascot, the Fighting Mules? Anyway, so Carl... Um, never really traveled outside of the confines of Missouri, Kansas. And as a college senior, he decided to apply to a program by the International Mission Board called the Journeyman Program, where you would go overseas for two years. So he applied, and if they accept you, then the mission board would match your gifts with a request from the field. And so Carl Schooling uh, qualified, and he was matched to go for two years to the Cayman Islands. The The theme of that experience was, send me, oh Lord, send me. <laughs> so, but, so, so Carl went from Missouri to the Cayman Islands. And when he flew into the Cayman Islands in 1975, for two years, that's the first time he had ever seen the ocean. Now, you're in 1830, Kansas. How, how do you describe the beauty of the Cayman Islands. So, so, so we're, we're trying, it's, it's, it's kind of like, I, I mean, th- that's even better than Myrtle Beach. You know, I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's incredible. You know, just as an aside, I, I, I had the privilege of traveling some and I'll meet people and, 
overseas, and they'll say, where are you from? And I'll say, South Carolina. And they'll say, it's above Florida. Because, you know, Disney World's in Florida. Everybody knows Florida. And then they'll say, South Carolina, isn't that where Myrtle Beach is? That happens all the time. And I go, oh, yeah, I guess, you know. So, uh, so anyway, so the Caymanites. Or, or it's, like, it's like 1830s, we're living in Mount Pleasant. And there's no video, obviously. There's no full fold-out color books in the library. And we're trying to describe the Himalayas to somebody who lives in Mount Pleasant. It's just hard. So, so you see this mountain, that's, I think this fish, fishtail, you just incredibly beautiful. And they say, what is Mount, what is what are the Himalayas like? You take Mount Pleasant and you multiply it by 36,000 feet and you're there. So the, part of our problem is the Bible gives us true truth, but the glory of heaven is so immense and so wonderful and so undescribable that we, we really have to pray, God, give us eyes and minds to see the reality. So that's the first problem is that we have to think well. Secondly is we live in a this world only place. Now, a book I would recommend strongly, and I'm going to be referring to it, is Heaven by Randy Alcorn. Another book is The City of God by, by Augustine. It's 1,200 pages. But really, a really wonderful chapter on heaven is from a book called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. It's book three, chapter 10 on hope. And Lewis says in Mere Christianity, says, says part of the problem with this whole issue is that one reason for this difficulty is that we have been trained our whole education around fixing our minds on this world only. And it's true. We were just this world only, this world only. And, and, and as a result, we sometimes don't grasp or talk about or get the joy of heaven. A month ago. I was out with my wife, Sarah, and we were stopped at a grocery store, and we pulled in to a grocery store, and a car pulled in simultaneously with us, and two women got out before we did, and they were going to the grocery store, and we walked behind them, and they were 55-ish, 60-ish, and they were dressed like teenagers. And the, the, way, their, the way their hair, the way their, their dress was, and they were, uh, and, and my heart broke. My heart broke. See, we need to look at each other and say to each other, it is okay to get old. It's okay to not wear a size two. It is okay to fill in the blank. You know, it's inevitable. It is absolutely inevitable in a culture that values and embraces youth and everybody gets up every day and says, I wish Ponce de Leon had indeed found the fountain of youth because that's what I'm looking for. I've seen several magazines as I check out the grocery store with Christy Brinkley on the front. Christy Brinkley and I are the same age. I just turned 64. I said, are you kidding me? Yeah, we really are. And the headline says, can you believe she's 63? And it said, Christy Brinkley is beautiful. You know, she's lovely. And yet, you know, she's been married and divorced four times. She's had a string of lovers. She can sometimes look good because she has a, a personal trainer on call, I'm sure, 24-7. And she eats a very good and expensive diet. And she's been to see a plastic surgeon a bunch. And so we, we, we glory in that. Listen, listen, 
I'm all for Christian Brinkley. God bless her. But, but, but the Bible says in Proverbs 31 with great clarity, charm is deceitful and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord should be praised. Not applauded. Praised. It is okay to get old. And, 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 and because, because heaven awaits It's inevitable. So I just made a quick trip to my home in North Carolina Friday and Saturday, and my mom is not doing well, and uh, she's in a convalescent center. We just put her in. It's a horrible thing. And uh, it's just hard. My mom is a believer, and I was there early Saturday morning, and I was there from five to seven just with her, and we talked, and she would fall asleep and wake up, and, and uh, she said, we, we prayed together, and she talked, and she said, do you think I'm going to die today? I said, Mom, I don't know. You might. I said, I might die today. But let me tell you something. When you breathe your last breath, you will wake up, wake up in the presence of the living God whose name is Jesus. You know? And I, I'm telling you, I'm not saying this because I'm a pastor and I'm paid to say this. I do not know how people go through death and disappointment without the reality of Jesus and the hope of heaven. I don't know. It's beyond me. I look at people who are just crass in their theological belief system, and they don't believe in it, then when you die, you die. And I'm thinking, how do you not grow bitter and angry and cynical as you get old? I don't know. I'm, I'm telling you, my hat's off to them. If you can grow old gracefully with an, without an eternal worldview that talks about the hope of heaven and the reality of Christ, boy, I, I admire you. I really admire you. Because life is filled with disappointments. Getting old is hard. Let me tell you something. I've walked with people who've died. Dying is hard. Unless you die on the spot. If you grow old and you die, it is hard. It's not a sport for cowards. So, so Randy Alcorn's book says we should have the hope of heaven because it leads to joy, expectation, and sobriety. Sobriety. Like I said, my birthday was last week. Thank you. Many of you gave me birthday greetings. A, a friend called me and sang happy birthday to me and left it on my voicemail. He should not have done that. Uh, he sounded like dear old Eva in that film we just watched. He, he should not be singing, so yeah. thank you for doing it, but man, don't, don't, you shouldn't do that. I've got in my office, I've got a list of my heroes, some of my heroes, and I've got the, 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 the year they died and the age they died. And I'm just go through them with you. This is John Calvin over here. John Calvin uh, died in 1564. Uh, he was 50. Five years old, 55. Next to him is John Bunyan. John Bunyan died at the age of 63. Next to him is Martin Luther, the younger. As he got older, Martin Luther got really big. Uh, so that's Martin Luther, the younger, who died at the age of 62. Next to Luther is George Whitfield, the great evangelist from England who kind of spearheaded the first great awakening in the 1770 to 1773. He died at the age of 57. He preached, went to bed, and died. Then here's some other guys. Jonathan Edwards, my main man. Jonathan Edwards died at the age of 50, 
four. And then Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great British preacher, died at the age of 58. And then Adoniram Judson, the missionary to Burma, who was so mightily used to the Lord, died at age 61, died at sea, trying to recover from a horrible, horrible disease. So I've got, I've got these guys, their names in my office because I'm 64. They all died before my age. And so when I look at that, it should fill me with sobriety. Life is short. We're not promised tomorrow. And eternity awaits. So C.S. Lewis in his little wonderful book, Mere Christianity, talks about three ways of looking at heaven. I'm going to go through them with you very quickly. It's the, the fool's way, the disillusioned but sensible man's way, and then the way of the Christian. So the, first of all, the fool's way. Lewis says that the fool's way is that a person puts the blame on the things themselves. He goes on all of his life thinking if only he had a, the right woman, or if only he had a more expensive holiday, or if only if he had the right hobby, he would catch the mysterious something we are all craving for. And Lewis says most of the bored, discontented, rich people in the world are of this type. They spend their whole lives trotting from woman to woman through the divorce courts and from continent to continent, from hobby to hobby, always thinking that the latest is the real thing and they will not be disappointed and they're inevitably disappointed. And then at the end of their life, looking at the, the ladder they put against a certain wall and they climb to the top of the ladder and say, this is the wrong building. It's the fool's way. The second is the way many people around us live and that's the, the disillusioned but sensible man. And who says the disillusioned but sensible man is someone who says, well, everything about eternity is nothing but, he says, moonshine or a fatuous dream. And, and, and therefore, I've come to live life expecting not much and just grinning and bearing it or gripping on and bearing it until I die. And Lewis says this makes someone okay, but it also makes him a prig or a morally exaggerated, superlative, superior person to yourself. And it says a lot of people live that way. They just deaden themselves. They, they say, well, yeah, there's no eternity, there's no hope, and, and my body's falling apart, but I'm just going to live a disciplined life, and I'm going to grin and bear it until the end. Like all those T-shirts you say that were produced in England that were never really released, be calm and endure to be calm and drink coffee, be calm and whatever. And then he says there's the Christian way. And he says this. If I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And he says, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for earthly blessings, and on the other, to never mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or an echo or a mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press into that other country and to help others do the same. So three statements about, about heaven, just doing the framework. So people say, what will heaven be like? Um, and here's my answer. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And as Lewis says, everything here is a copy of 
the ultimate. So if you know what heaven's going to be like, go outside and look at the beautiful landscape of Charleston as you go across our bridges and multiply it a thousand times. Or when you embrace a friend and you enjoy the friendship of someone, multiply it a thousand times. Or when you hold one of these children and they, and they smile at you, when a child smiles at you, your, your whole being explodes with laughter, multiply it a thousand or ten thousand times. Or when you have a succulent meal, multiply it infinitely. That is heaven. It is everything we enjoy multiplied beyond understanding. And that's, that's really the best I can do. So I was in Washington recently, a place called Wenatchee. Wenatchee is called the apple capital of the world. And there are apples everywhere. So I, I love apples, but I'm not an apple aficionado. But there have been times when I've gone to get an apple and I've gone out of the grocery store and it's firm and it's red and you're going, this is going to be good. And then you bite it and there's no taste. You might as well be eating a cucumber. There's nothing there. And there's, that, that's just, I just go, oh man. But there's somebody here on our staff that's an apple aficionado. He says, hey, hey, the best apples in the world are Crips Pink, or it's called Pink Ladies. So I said, okay, I'm stuck in the back of my mind. At a grocery store in Wenatchee last week, there's a sale on apples, including $1.99 a pound, Pink Ladies. So I'm gonna go for it. So I get six of them, put them in the bag, go outside, bite into it. I mean, it's sweet, it's tart, it's firm, it's juicy, it's like good grief. This is what an apple should really taste like. See, we will never be disappointed with anything in glory. Everything we have will be that times 10,000. What will heaven be like? Go outside, multiply it a thousand times. It's incredible. It's beautiful. Number two, I want you to get this. Understanding the hope of heaven helps me live life here with joy and celebration and sobriety and with a proper expectation. Explain that. If you study church history, many of the heresies or aberrant living Christians all believed they could bring in a perfectionist utopia in this world. The radical Anabaptist believed in a perfectionistic utopia where there'd be no sin and yada, 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 and, and they all crashed and burned. You will struggle with sin to the day you die. You are a sinner, saved by grace, being changed by the Holy Spirit. I'm dysfunctional, you're dysfunctional. We don't tolerate or, or cotton sin, but, but we, we realize we'll, we'll have this, this ongoing issue. So, uh, so I won't have a bar diagram and I couldn't get it reproduced. So, so if, you're, if you have a diagram, right here is what I call settling for less than the biblical teaching. In other words, you, 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 you settle for less than what the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life. And up here is perfectionism. Don't you see that? So uh, 
you settle for less. You say, well, we're all messed up, therefore fill in the blank. No, 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 no. The Bible says that we're to imitate Christ and be men and women who grow in holiness. So, so we don't want to settle. Up here is perfectionism. And, and, and right here in the middle is, is the golden mean. And, and we're to grow in that area, but we'll never be perfect. I, I, so when I understand that, that only in heaven will I be perfect, it lets me live with joy and acceptance and friendship with people and be married to people and be a parent to people and be parented by people who are less than perfect. Example, I've done this hundreds of times with couples, with my wife. Rate our marriage one to 10. 10 being Riha, one being bad news. You get a bunch of guys together. Rate your marriage one to 10. Huh. Eight, eight and a half. Really? Why? Well, I don't know. I mean, the police didn't visit us this week because we argued too loudly. Uh, we, uh, I brought her home a, bar- a barbecue sandwich on Tuesday night. Um, uh, yeah, it's an eight. Maybe eight and a half. Okay. Ask the same question to their wives. You know what they say? Somebody guess. Five. Five. Maybe six. Maybe four. So why five? Well, I like to spend an hour every night where we existentially express our emotive feelings toward one another. And he only did three nights this week. And yesterday was a beautiful day, and instead of taking me downtown and holding my hands and shopping, he stayed home and he watched two football games. My thought is, only two? But that's beside the point. So, so he, he just, so we're, we're, we're bumping along at about a five. And see, right here. See, that's why I love re-engaged. It's a course in this church you should all do. 16 weeks is Christ-centered. It's about marriage. And at the end, you have tools to help you grow, but you realize you're going to work on your marriage till the day you die or Jesus comes. So, so ex- expectations in parenting. What do you expect? I see these little babies. I mean, let's, let's be honest. All these parents think this child is brilliant. This child is this generation's answer to Mozart or Hulk Hogan, whichever you want to be, you know, this child. And, and the reality is this child is a sinner. I was with a, a parent recently and they, 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 she said to me, she said, I, I did not understand original sin until I had a baby. <laughs> and I thought, that's a theologically strong statement. I mean, so in your parenting, we sometimes have a tendency to settle. Don't do that. But then we also have a tendency to think they're going to be perfect. Well, the problem is, look at their parents. They're not going to be perfect. You know, look at their grandparents, for heaven's sake. So to me, the hope of heaven helps me live life with joy, expectation, and with a realistic biblical embrace of those around me. And then the third point is this, to, to quote Lewis, he says, don't let it get snowed under. Don't, don't let this hope get snowed under. Don't let it get turned aside. You must make it the main object of life to press to the other country and to help others to do the same. And I've got to be honest with you, I'm not sure how to do that. 
I mean, had he not let it get snowed under? Well, I thought, well, well you, you pray through a word that has an H in it. For example, thanks. You know, the H was written, thank you, Lord, for the hope of heaven. Thank you for the, 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 the heaven that awaits is perfect and glorious and is, is what will be unbelievably fantastic. Thank you for that. But you, you pray through that. See, if we only talk about heaven when people are dying or at funerals, I think we betray the New Testament message. We should be together occasionally. Man, this is great. This is glorious. This is a wonderful Thanksgiving meal. Imagine what it's going to be like to feast in the presence of the living Christ in heaven. I love the laughter of friendship. I love being with people. Imagine what it's going to be like when we're in the presence of the living God. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be 10,000 times what we're experiencing. It's going to be incredible. Yes, your body is fading away. Yes, you're slowing down. Yes, it hurts. But one day, resurrection of bodies. And that encourages. Brothers and sisters, don't let it get snowed under. Don't let it get turned aside. Understand that the two streams of defeating and paralyzing sin is our union with Christ and the hope of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day and the, the privilege of opening the Bible and hearing from you. Thank you that you, Lord Christ, are the alpha and the omega of what we need as believers. You are eternal. You have made the heavens and the earth. You have spoke them into being. You, by the power that you bring, Holy Spirit, live in your children and change us. And I pray, Lord, that we'd be men and women who contemplate the glory and the greatness of heaven. And that as we do that, we'd be changed. We'd think better and live better and live with joy and expectation and sobriety that we would uh, be people who understand that it's okay to be old. It's okay to get old and that we would live with dignity and joy. So, so, Lord, do that in our lives. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Thank you that as many among us are facing their first Thanksgiving without a spouse or a parent or a child, maybe, that there is hope that extends beyond death. Uh, just thank you for that. And I pray it would not be snowed under or turned aside in our understanding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.